has for us this morning. Father, we thank you that we can come and to open your word. And it's amazing because it is through its pages we can see that you are a God who has worked in human history and has given us a record to begin to study who you are. We get to see that you are holy, that you are separate from anything, that there is no God um, that is higher than you because you are the one and truly, truly only God who is perfect, who cannot do wrong. And we see that how far we fall short. And so we come to open the pages to see why this time of season is a great opportunity, not only for us to share the gospel with the lost, the lost culture that we have, but also begin to see with maybe fresh eyes again the gloriousness of the salvation that you have provided for man on how you have come into this world in human flesh to die for our sins. So, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn in it to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of the, the, uh, the pew Bibles, because we're going to be looking at a number of different verses that I already apologized to Kevin this morning, because he put all the verses, and they're all going to be on the screen, but we're going to be looking at a number of different things. But as you turn there, this is the Christmas season, as, as you know, to where everyone's preparing a lot of different activities, different celebrations, um, getting ready for the gift giving, to spend time with their family. And it seems like that for the believer, the believer actually knows the true meaning of this season. We know that Christ came as a babe. He came as a babe to live a perfect, righteous life to die upon the cross. We know that. But it's interesting because the world begins to pick and chooses what of the Christian elements of the story that they want to hang on to, and we begin to see them in the songs that are played on the radio, in um, the concepts that are out there, and it seems like things center around what we just um, sung. Peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Those are great concepts, because no matter how religious or irreligious one may be, one will always embrace the concept of having peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Everyone could embrace that. And so that seems to be at the heart of how the world sort of looks at Christmas when you begin to take Christ out of it. And it's interesting because we see how the world uh, celebrates things by its decorations and the trees and things, and that's okay. I, I don't mind those elements. But it's interesting because if you um, were to Google the top 10 most expensive Christmas trees, two of the countries that, um, that are represented in those top 10 lists are Muslim countries, to where if you were to embrace Christ in this time of season, you'd be put to death. But yet, they have Christmas trees. Why? Peace on earth. Goodwill to all men. That's a great concept. We're to love one another. 
It's those other elements that they don't have. And that's really at the heart of how our culture even looks at it. Because then you begin to throw in Santa Claus and the reindeers and the snowmen and, and the elves and all, all of that stuff. The true, the true meaning of Christmas actually gets lost. Now, I know for, for myself, I don't throw the baby out with the bath, bath water because I love this time of year. Because I equated that when you begin to look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets spoke about there would be a promised one who would come and he would provide redemption for his people. And they yearned for thousands of years for that day to happen. And when you look at the incarnation, that's the beginning of God's redemptive plan here on earth. And so he came as a babe to live a perfect righteous life to die on, on the cross. I like that story. And I don't mind celebrating with family and friends and gift giving, but always coming around to the fact that the reason why we do those things is because Christ provided a way of salvation for man. And so we begin to, we begin to see this. And it's interesting because the world just loves that aspect of peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And it's a part of, in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the message from the angels as they tell the shepherds, those who were outcast, the Christmas, uh, the Christmas message when they appeared to them, where it says, and suddenly there appeared an angel with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so that's the message from the angel. And it's the message that our culture loves to hear. But the one who came, if you think about it, never brought, even until this day, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. It's more than just a temporal thing. Though it will happen when he comes to set up his kingdom, but it's more than that. Peace with God. And there will be a, a kingdom. And so this peace on earth and goodwill to all men is part of how the world picks and chooses. They like that part, but they don't accept what, what um, the Bible's understanding of what peace on earth and goodwill to all men has all about. And so at times in which they begin to look at the biblical elements of the Christmas story, they see the babe in the manger. They like that picture. Babies are cute. They coo and they eat and they sleep. They're cute. They're cuddly. They like the meek and mild Jesus. But yet, when our culture picks and chooses the aspects of the Christmas season, they don't like the older Jesus. They think the older Jesus is much more threatening. They don't like him. They don't like the older Jesus when he begins to demand things from man. They like the babe in the manger. That's not offensive. And so the songs are, sing, are sung by, by people to where they proclaim the gospel many times within the song, but yet they don't understand the gospel. And so when we begin to look at the, the babe in the manger, especially when we look at our passage in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the Christmas story. 
And this morning, I want to focus on there are four names or titles of who this babe in the manger actually is. And so as you begin to look at that, we need to be reminded. Because for some of us, we just look at the baby Jesus and, and think, oh, he's, he was a, a great teacher or he was a great prophet. But we don't see who he is as defined in the Christmas story. And so for us to understand that, we need to look at these four names. And I want to start reading Matthew chapter 1 and read down to, uh, uh, to the beginning of chapter 2. And I want you to see if you can spot these four names. Now, as we go through things, there is a sermon outline that's been handed out. If you did not get one, they're going to be by, by the front door. And the only reason why I say that is I'm going to get to a part to where you may want to keep for yourself um, a record of why Jesus is God in the flesh. But we'll talk more about that in a moment. But look at verse 18. I want to see if you can spot these four names. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, we find the, uh, the Christmas story, and, and we find that now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and has come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. It's a very familiar story, but there are four uh, names of the, of the child that is in the major that sort of stands out here. And I have them circled uh, in, in my Bible to remind me of who this babe in the manger is. The first one is found in verse 21 of chapter 1. We find the name Jesus. The second one is found in verse 23, Emmanuel. 
The third is found in chapter 2, verse 2, king. And then the fourth is found in verse 4 of chapter 2, Messiah. Though there are other names and titles of Jesus that we could look at, but here in Matthew's account, he chooses four aspects. Jesus, Emmanuel, King, and Messiah to give a clear, concise definition of who the babe is. And so when you begin to understand who this babe is, you begin to understand what his ministry is going to be about and the need for him to die on, on the cross. And so these titles gives an exact understanding of the babe. And there's no doubt on how our response should be. And so the reason why I decided to look at these four names is, first of all, is to remind us why we celebrate the Incarnation. It's a celebration of God bringing about his plan of redemption. And so that's always a celebration. And, and as we uh, come to partake at the table, that's a celebration to remember what he has done by taking on human flesh. So it's a reminder for us to put joy and focus within our hearts. But also, it's the Christmas season. The Lord may open up an opportunity for you to share Christ with someone during this season. Seems like for, for the unbeliever, this is the time in which they're most open to it. They're hearing songs about it, about Mary and Joseph and the manger. They're there. Sometimes they, they get lost on, on, on the radio with all the other songs, with Santa coming to town, but they are there. And so they hear it. And the gospel is proclaimed. And I thank God for as many times they can hear about Jesus and why he came to earth. And so God may give you the opportunity to share your faith, and we need to be reminded of that. And maybe during this Christmas season, you can share your faith with someone about who this babe in the major actually is and why we celebrate this time. And then thirdly, you may be along for the ride and just think Jesus is just a good teacher, a good man who had a good message, and that we should um, join him and along with other good men and just seek out after peace on earth and goodwill to all men. But you don't know that if you were to die tonight, where you would go. And so we need to be focusing on the reason for this season. And maybe this day you can see exactly who the babe in the major is through these four names and titles. And so as we begin to come to Matthew chapter 1, we find as this um, chapter begins to open, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. They haven't had the formal ceremony yet, but there was a year of betrothal period to where they were almost just like that they were married. And so they lived in Nazareth, and the angel had already appeared to, to Mary to tell her what was going, going to be happening to her. And though our text doesn't say, but Joseph, whether through the baby bump that she had, because sooner or later she would have had to show, or Mary told her, I'm with child, he begins to put her away secretly because um, he wanted to end the, be the betrothal because he thought she was sleeping around, that she was unfaithful to him. And so he wanted to do it uh, privately to, and not to put her through public shame. 
But in, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And we find in verse 20, the angel saying, Joseph, son of David. And so we get to see that Joseph is in the line of David. Don't be afraid. Why? <laughs> if you get to see an angel, you'll be terrified also. And so he's terrified. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to look at, at verse 21, and we begin to see this first name of this babe. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so the name Jesus here is the, is the first name that we have. And so we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. And so it begins to define for, for him who he is because for the, uh, for the Jew, names are important. So when you go through the Old Testament, names are very important. And his name describes the task that he needs to accomplish. It means deliverer or, or savior. The Hebrew word is Yeshua or Joshua. And it means the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. So by his name, it gives a picture of the task that he has to do. He is going to provide salvation. He is going to provide a way in which he can save people. He will be a deliverer. And so he, he is coming to save his people from his sin. It's the same message that Mary got from, from the angel, because in Luke chapter 2, in verse 10, we find the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold... Bring to you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born... Well, I guess he's, the angels are, are telling the shepherds. So sorry. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so the angels appear before the shepherds. The angels did not go to the religious elite or the most influential people in Israel, but they went to the least appreciated ones. The shepherds, and they go there to say, God is faithful, and he's finally bringing about the one that you have been looking for, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And so Jesus' name points to the fact that he will bring about salvation to his people. But what exactly do they need to be saved from? Because when you... When a person gets saved, it's more than just a ticket uh, to get out of hell card. But essentially, at the, the core aspect of it is that one is being saved from God himself for his wrath that he has towards the sinner. God hates sin. He is a holy God. He's a perfect, righteous God. And he has to judge sin. And so he's incapable of, of error. He is complete holiness. And so he has to judge sin because of his holiness. And so God is going to be uh, judging every man and every woman who has ever lived. And as we shall see, all men stand in the, in the place in which they are spiritually dead. And so by themselves, they are condemned. And so because of that, they need to be saved from God himself and the wrath that, that will come one day when they are judged for their actions, for their thoughts, that the things 
that they have done because the wages of sin is death. It's spiritual death, being separated from God. And so at the time in which Jesus was born, Israel was under the control of Rome. The religious leaders and the political leaders, they were looking for a political leader to be raising up to save them from the bondage and the tyranny out of Rome. But they weren't necessarily looking for a spiritual leader who would save them from, from their sin. And so when you begin to look at this babe, he came as a babe to live among men to ultimately die on the cross. And so we have a need to be saved. And God is a saving God by nature. And so he has a plan of salvation in which he has uh, put into motion. And we see this brought out in Romans chapter 5, where it says in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been declared righteous because of the blood of Christ. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so when you look at the salvation in which the angels are proclaiming within the Christmas story to save people, Jesus naming, I am going to save people from their sin, save people from God's wrath. Verse 10, for while we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so when you look at the name of Jesus, he does save people from their sin to all those who turn to him. Because on their own, they're lost, and there's nothing that they can do to change that. But yet, I want you to look at verse 20, if you would, especially at verse 23. There's a second title, because we're going to come back to Jesus in a moment. But in the second title, is one that you know because it's a big part of the Christmas story, is the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. In verse 20, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and that's the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, which says this in verse 23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when you begin to look at the babe, not only is he a babe who is about to bring salvation in the forgiveness of sin from God, but he is also God with us, which was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before that there would be one who would come. He'd be born of a virgin, and he is God with us. And so this must have been a foreign concept to Joseph because in his mind, how could one be born without a father, without a human father? And so this same statement is also made in Luke chapter 2 when the angel is talking to Mary and gives a little bit of a clarification on who will help sire the child. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And so she is saying, 
How could I have a son without knowing a man? In verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What an amazing statement. This child will have Mary as his mother and be conceived by the Holy Spirit. This would be like no other birth that has ever taken place in the history of the world. The angel is telling Mary that within her womb will be sinless humanity that will be joined with eternal deity. The child that you will have will be 100% man while being 100% God. God with us. Not partly God and mostly man, but 100% God and 100% man. His deity was not humanized, nor his humanity become deified. He remained fully divine throughout his um, entire earthly life. Though he sort of um, veiled his divine, some of his divine prerogative, he was 100% God at the same time as being 100% man. And so when you view the babe in the manger, that's a part of the picture that you see. He was truly God and truly man. Jesus was God in the flesh. I want you to turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, and we get to see this through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul is giving us a glimpse of the fact of who, of who Christ was through the spiritual world and the natural world. In verse 15, the he here is going to be Jesus. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. Or a better way to translate that, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Where did he get that? Well, in the next part of the verse, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and here it comes, in the heavens, the spiritual realm, and on the earth, the physical realm, visible Invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rules or authority that has the aspect of the authorities in the spiritual realm or the physical realm. And so there's this physical realm and um, invisible realm being, being talked about here. So in verse 15, we can say that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is God with us. That's exactly what Jesus tells Philip in, in John chapter 14 in verse 9, where he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Want to see the Father? Jesus is right there. In John chapter 10, as Jesus' earthly ministry was beginning to come to a close, the religious leaders were getting annoyed with him. And they come to him with a question that was very pointed. Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Stop beating around the bush with all these symbolisms, the parables and things. Tell us plainly. 
And in verse 25, we find that Jesus answered them. And this is interesting. I told you, but you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hears my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And verse 30 is the key to where they were ready to stone him. I and my Father are one. And they pick up stones in verse 31, and they try to stone them again. Why? Blasphemy. No man could ever claim to be God. That would be blasphemy. And he's saying, I am God. We're, we're, we're one. One in essence, one in purpose, one in every way. And Jesus claims to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Jesus did. And when you begin to hear people these days say that when they come to speak about God, they speak about God in the most vague of terms. But when you begin to look at Jesus, I mean, when you begin to want to know God, you need to look at Jesus. And there's one thing that I want you to remember that the incarnation means that we discover who and what God is like by looking at Jesus. So when we say God is eternal, we should look at Jesus, and Jesus is eternal. When we look at God and say he is holy, we should look at Jesus, he is holy. When we look at God, he's all-powerful, Jesus is all-powerful. When we look at God and say he's all-knowing and unchanging, Jesus is that. So there was never a time when Jesus was not God. But there was a time when, when, when Jesus was not a man. In eternity past, Jesus was always God. But then he took on human flesh. And that human flesh didn't change his, his divinity at all. But that human flesh would carry on with him for the rest of eternity. That is historical, biblical orthodoxy, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. You look at church history, that's what the church has always believed. Even the apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So when you begin to look at the babe in the manger, at, with the incarnation, it wasn't that somehow some of his divine attributes uh, were, were just thrown away. And it wasn't that he was, uh, he was divided up. He was 40% man and 60% God. But he added hu uh, humanity to his divinity and welded it together. So he is now the God-man. And I don't fully understand that. I like what Steve Lawson has, has to uh, say about when he summarizes the virgin birth. He says, define the virgin birth and you will lose your mind. Deny the virgin birth and you will lose your soul. 
That's at the heart of Christianity. And when it comes to somebody during this time of year in which they ask you, why do you believe this babe is God in the flesh? What answer would you give them? And I hope it's more than just, well, the Bible says so. Because that's not good enough. Because for the Mormon, he, the Mormon will say, well, the Bible says that he is not God. Jehovah Witness would say the same thing. What would you say to someone asking that question? Because God may use you to share the gospel with someone that you have been praying for, and they may ask the question, why do you say that Jesus is God in the flesh? And Steve Lawson gives five reasons why we believe in the deity of Christ, and it's on the back of your sermon outline. So flip over to the back if you received one of them. And if you didn't, it's going to be um, out in the foyer because these five reasons should at least you should have memorized or written in the back of your Bible because that's why God has given you blank pages in the back of your Bible to write in things so you can find them very fast. And this is one of those things because if you can't remember, you need, you need to share with someone because it will come up at some time. Your children may ask you. Your parents may ask you. Someone's going to ask you, why do you believe in the deity of Christ? And there are five reasons. And I've looked at this before, but it's found in uh, the acronym WANE. W-W-A-N-E. WANE. If you remember WANE and what they stand for, I got this. This is cake. And so the first, the first W is WORKS. Of Wayne. Jesus performed the works that only God can perform. And so we believe that in the deed of Christ because you look at the works that he has done, whether or not he forgives sins in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, or him healing everyone uh, throughout Israel during, during the time. Only God can, can heal. It talks about how Jesus created out of nothing. And so Jesus performed the works that no man could ever do. But God did. But secondly, there's worship. He receives the worship that only God is to receive. That's why we believe that he is in, in his deity. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, John falls down to, worship, to begin to worship the angel that gives him the message. And we haven't gotten there yet. But the angel tells him, stop that. I am a fellow servant. Worship God alone. And everyone would say, yeah, God is our focus of worship. But if you look at Matthew chapter 2, and we will in a moment, verse 11, the magi comes to the house, and they see the babe, and they fall down, and they worship him. They worship the babe. It's either blasphemy or he's God. But that's not the only place. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, it said, let all the angels worship him. In Revelation chapter 5, the angels are exalting um, and, and saying, worthy is the lamb, and the elders fall down and they worship the lamb who was worthy. And so Jesus receives the worship that only God is to receive. Thirdly, Jesus performed the attributes that only God possesses. And so whether or not, you, when you look at Jesus' Jesus's, um, 
Um, omnipotent, he turns the water into wine on his own accord, or he feeds the 5,000, or he calms the storming sea. He's doing attributes that only God can do, that no man can do on, on his own, but he does. He tells the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed, I existed in John chapter 8. And so there's a number of, of other things, but Jesus possesses attributes and performs those things that only God can do. That's why we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. But also, fourthly, <laughs> uh, Jesus, we, find, uh, we find names. Jesus is called the names which only God is to be called. We have it here, Emmanuel, God with us. God is in our presence. Or like in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas cries out when he sees the resurrected Lord, my Lord and my God, and he never corrected him. So when you look at the names that Jesus has, they're synonymous to the names that God has. And then lastly, the E is equated. Jesus is equated with God. Whether or not, as John um, 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one, or we saw earlier John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Or even John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you should have an answer when someone asks, why do you believe in the deity of Christ? And you should go, glad you asked, Wayne. <laughs> Worship. Uh, um, works. There we go. Attributes, name, equate. And so that's why we believe God. And so Jesus was always God and he will be God because the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. He's co-equal to the Father. He possesses all the same attributes as God and all the personhood of God. He is truly God with us. And that is sharply different than how the Mormons viewed the babe in the manger. They said, he's, he's a God, but he's one of many gods. The Jehovah Witness, he's not God. He's a created being. They don't believe that Jesus is the God-man. They don't believe that he's co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And not to believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man is to damn one soul to an eternally, eternity in hell. So that means to have true salvation with the Father, you must believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. You can't take Jesus out of the equation. There is only one way to God, and that is through Christ. And to deviate this is more than just heresy. It will damn one soul for an eternity in hell. And so, no man has ever fulfilled such a claim. But he is the second member of the Trinity, the second member of the Godhead. But it's interesting because we don't have the why. Why did Jesus have to be 100% God at the same time as 100% man? Has to be a question that you had to think about at some point because we, we sort of know about that, but, but, but why? 
I want you to look at Romans chapter 5 for a moment. We find the why. And it's a theological understanding, but it goes back to what Adam had done. Because in Romans chapter 5, if you sort of summarize what Paul is saying, he basically breaks down Romans chapter 5 in that there are two men with two acts with two different results. There's the first Adam, and there's a second Adam. First Adam had an activity which resulted in something. Second man had an activity which resulted in, in, in something. And so two men, two acts, two results. And so let's, let's look at the first act in, in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. And it begins to give us an, a reason why Jesus had to be God and had to be a man. And it goes back to the curse. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's act condemned the entire human race. He was our federal head. He represented all of mankind. So when he sinned, all of mankind is now at war with God and an enemy with God. They're all spiritually dead. And when he fell, we fell with him. And so when God judged Adam for his actions, he placed a judgment on all mankind. And so in Adam... We have all died. So if that's where the passage ended, we would be helplessly lost. No matter how good one would be, there's no way that we could change our spiritual deadness because dead man can't do anything. Because dead men tell no tales. Sorry, that just popped in my head. Too much cold medicine, I'm sorry. But look at verse, look at verse 15. We find this, but the free gift is not like the transgression. So there's a contrast for the second Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, many die, that's Adam, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And so through the first Adam... All have sinned. But through the second Adam, he provides a way of salvation because what he accomplished at the cross. So what am I saying? Well, Adam is all mankind's federal head. He's our representative. But for all those who place their their faith in him because of the grace of God that God has given us a way of salvation, Christ becomes the believer's federal head. We are united with Christ. We have union with Christ because of his federal head. He represents all those who place their faith in Christ. Look at verse 18. So then, through one man's transgression resulted in condemnation to all men. That's Adam. And so through one man's act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though through one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. Even so, the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Two men, Adam and Christ, once had an act of sin. The other one had an act of obedience. One resulted in death, spiritual death. One resulted in an act of obedience. 
So what Paul is saying here is that sin is passed down because of the curse that is found in Adam. All men have sinned. He is mankind's representative. Trouble is, with Jesus, he didn't have a human father. That curse didn't pass down because he was not under Adam's federal head. And so because of that, he was fully able to fulfill the law and take on sin on the cross. That's why when you begin to look at the virgin birth, the virgin birth matters. You can't be homing and humming, well, I'm not sure about that virgin birth thing. The virgin birth is not something that you can take or leave. Christ is more than just a nice example for us to follow. Because if Christ was merely our example and there was no virgin birth, he stands condemned because Adam is our federal head. So he had to be God because the curse was passed down to Adam. And so he was now able to live a life with perfect obedience to the law of God and fulfill his law. And his righteousness now can be imputed over to all who believe. So he became a substitute and paid the wrath intended for you. And so because of his righteousness and faithfulness to God. So with Christ's active obedience, he kept the entire law and actually was righteous. Thereby, he was able to impute to you his righteousness. And then, through his passive obedience, he accepts in himself the debt and death that you owe to God that you could not pay. Therefore, at the cross, our sins could be imputed to Christ. So there's that double imputation that is happening. His perfect life and what he gave is now passed on to all who believe to where your terrible, sinful life was passed on to him and God poured out his wrath upon him for dying on the cross. So the, the virgin birth matters because if Christ is not actually righteous, then he is no better than Buddha or Muhammad. But if he was born from a virgin, lived a sinful, a sinless life, died a vicarious substitutionary death, rose in victorious confirming resurrection, ascended and been exalted and sits down at the right hand of God, thereby making intercession for us, and one day he will return for us and set up his kingdom and then judge the living and the dead, gather his people together, then the virgin birth matters because he is God in the flesh. He is God with us. He had to be that or he could not accomplish the task that he has. But in a few moments that we have left, we have two more areas. So he is, he is Jesus who brings about salvation. He is God with us. But thirdly, look at chapter 2 and verse 2. We find the Magi showing up and asking the religious leaders 
and then going to the king who is ruling, ruling the, the land of Judea, where is the babe? Verse 1, and after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, and that's important. He is called King Herod here. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And we all know something about someone who is king. He is, an, he is one who has absolute authority to rule. His reign lasts his entire lifetime. So there are no term limits with a king. And we looked at that in Genesis chapter 49, where the promised one um, was promised to Jacob, and the promised one would come through Judah. And let me just sh show you what this shows about the king of Israel that would come. In Genesis chapter 49, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of the enemies, and your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is like a lion's whelp, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he crouches and lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. All of this is a picture of a king receiving praise, having strength, bow, those bowing down to him. He's described as a lion who has a scepter, which is a symbol of his rule, and he will return to his rule. And so that's the picture of the promised one, of the king. And so it was a picture of a near fulfillment of David who would be king for Israel, and the promised lion would come through him. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, we have that Davidic covenant being being described, and in verse, in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, we find that through his rule, in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this picture in which, David, when you die, your son's going to take the throne and I will be with him. He's going to sin, but I'm going to forgive him. And that line will, will rule in your kingdom, and your throne shall be forever. Well, currently Israel has no king. But there is one, there's the promised one who is coming. And so there is a forever king who is Mary, who Mary is, is promised who will come. In Luke chapter 1, we find the angel telling her this in that there is a king that the magis are questioning. Where is this king? And Mary has a glimpse when the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he shall be great and be called the son of the Most High. Most High has a picture of an Old Testament title for God, which stresses his sovereignty and his deity. And so your son will be born, and he will be the son of God. He will have the same essence as God. He will be God incarnate. So there we see his divinity. 
But look at the next part of the verse. We get to see this kingly aspect. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And this kingdom will have no end. So we get to see this, this king aspect of the babe in the major. It's his humanity. Not only do we see his divinity, he's the son of the most high, but his rule will last forever. And so he, the one who is promised shall be king. Turn back one, one page because the, the book of Matthew actually begins showing that Jesus is going to be king. He is not just a king, but he's going to be the king. And it begins here in, in the record because we have that genealogy um, that we find. That Jesus' bloodline, who he is related to, gives him the right to be this king. And in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is writing to a, uh, a Jewish audience. And look at verse 16, if you would. And we, and we find Joseph, after going through a list, Joseph is, is linked, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And, and so though Jesus is not the biological father of the babe, but he's the adopted father. And we've talked about adoption in the past. When you adopt a child, all the rights and privileges of a biological um, child. And so if you look at verse 1, uh, and the, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he's related to Abraham, and he's related to King David. And if we had time, we would look at Mary's account. Mary is the mother of Jesus in a direct bloodline. She's related to, to David. So whether through his... Um, Adopted father or through his biological mother, Jesus has the right to rule. And so Jesus is the king, the king of the Jews when the magi show up. But before we move on to the next one, I want you to look at, go back to Matthew chapter 2 for a moment. Because a king could be a tyrant. He could be evil. He could... Have, he, he could rule with an iron fist and make it unbearable for his subjects. But as we find here, the, with the explanation of who this king is, we find a description of what kind of rule he's going to have. Look at verse 5 of Matthew chapter 2. And in Bethlehem, they, they, they tell King Herod, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But for you in Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers. So there's that kingly ruling aspect. For out of you shall come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. A ruler evokes the image of strong leadership, meaning he's not a puppet king, but there's a tender care because he's a shepherd. A shepherd guides. He cares, he comforts, he leads his flock. So not only is this king, this babe a king, but also he's going to have a tender, loving care for God's people. And that's exactly the message of what Christ told in John chapter 10 when we looked at that great I am statement, that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows the name of his sheep. 
He guides and protects and provides. He lays down his life for his sheep. He loses none of his sheep. And he gives his sheep eternal life. He shepherds his people. And so Jesus has a right to rule. So much so that by the time we get to Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is described as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There, are, there is no one who can compare, be compared to him. And so when you look at the babe in the manger, he's more than just an average baby. He's a royal baby. He is one that is going to make demands upon the life of his people. So we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then lastly, I want you to look at verse 4 of, of Matthew chapter 2. We find that last one, that, Christ, that this babe is going to be the Christ or the Messiah. And gathering together all the priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Where was the promised one to be born? Where was the one, when you look at all the Old Testament passages, the one that, that describes that there will be one who would come and be a fulfillment of, of, of a king, of a priest, of, of a prophet, of a deliverer. Because one who was anointed was consecrated by God and set apart. Whether or not it was an object for the, for the temple, those objects were anointed and they were separate, or whether or not it was for a person. That there would be one, the Messiah, who would come and be completely set apart. The one who would be the perfect king and the perfect priest and the perfect prophet. So much so that in John chapter 1, in verse 41, we find that as John's gospel begins to unfold and Jesus begins to get his disciples together, we find that with Andrew, he runs to his brother, Simon Peter. In verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, who is translated means Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. But it's interesting because we haven't found a Messiah. We have found the Messiah. There's a definite article that is linked with that. We found the promised one. We, not just any old person claiming, but we found him. And not just that, in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, it ends with the same proclamation. So the Gospel of John begins by saying, we found the Messiah, and at the end, in verse 30, 31, we find, but these things, the entire Gospel, was written so that you may believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he is the promised one. He is the one to where was promised that he would come to bring about salvation, that he would bruise the serpent's head and put him... Uh, and put an end to his reign. When the apostles begin to proclaim the, uh, the message after, um, after Christ's resurrection in Acts chapter 2, they proclaim that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ who they crucified. And so those are the four titles that sort of stand out. 
And it's interesting because when you begin to look at verse 11, what, were, what was the Magi's response? The Magi's response to finding and seeing the babe in the manger who was the king of the Jews, who they have come to worship him. The response was one of worship. And they fell to the ground and worshiped him. So as we prepare our hearts for the Christmas season, we get to see that the babe in, in the manger is more than just a babe. He's a savior. He's God with us. He's the king. He is the promised one that was promised. And so how do you view the babe in the manger? How do you view this time of year? Because we're coming to celebrate things at the table. It's his death. It's his burial. It's his resurrection. It's his sacrifice. It's the atonement that he had, he had made to all those who turned to him. And so for some, you may have never placed your faith in Christ. You think you're religious because you, you think to yourself, look at all of the stuff I've done, the money that I've given, the time that I spend in church, the activities that I do. It's all of what you do. But do you see your relationship with the Lord to where I was lost in my sin? I, I was spiritually dead. There was nothing that I can do, but the free gift of God was his grace to where it was his unmerited favor that he provided salvation for, for one who was completely unworthy. One is a place to where you're trying to prove your worthiness, and one is other, you acknowledge your helplessness in the place where you are, and you put your complete in faith and, tr and trust in what Christ had done. The babe in the manger is the picture of the incarnation to where God is bringing about his plan of salvation, and it ends at the cross. And so that is why we celebrate this season. And maybe you're one to where you need to be reminded of this. And maybe you're one to where God will use this opportunity in this time of year for you to share the gospel with someone because they're ready to talk about it because it's Christmas and the real meaning of the season. So as the men begin to come forward, let's prepare our, our hearts to partake at the table. We do this only to remember of, our, of Christ's broken body in his shed blood. There's nothing special about it, and it's a time for believers to remember. Remember the new covenant. Remember the sacrifice that was done. Remember his perfect life was given to us, and my sin was placed upon him. So in many ways, it's also a, a time of celebration. And so as, as the men pass things out, let us prepare our hearts. Father, 
Use this time of celebration to give us eyes to give your name glory for what you have done.